Yes, give them a round of applause. Yes, absolutely. We appreciate our worship team and all that they do. And good morning to each single one of you this morning. I pray you've had a wonderful morning so far, worshiping the Lord together. And it is my absolute honor and privilege to finish off this awesome series that we started a few weeks back on prayer. As Steve said, it is our desire to be a church that marvels at God in prayer. And we've had uh, a, a few guests who have helped us understand a little bit about prayer and the superpower that's available to God's people as we do pray. In the first week, we spoke about the supernatural intervention of God, that God can actually intervene in our situations beyond our abilities to manufacture an outcome. And the following week, we spoke about supernatural intimacy with God. That as we spend, to, we spend time with God, with the right motivation to connect with Him personally, He's able to transform our character and give us this passionate, intimate relationship that sometimes we hear about and sometimes we see it, but oftentimes we lack experiencing it. It is available and accessible, a superpower of intimate relationship with God. And last week, we had an experience of how prayer can bring us wisdom, direction, and clarity. As we come to God first, He gives us insight for our lives. And today, I'd like to look at the power of, of prayer relationally in our relational realm. And as Steve said, Iron Man is our guest today. And Iron Man, for those of you who are uh, superhero fans, uh, you know that he doesn't have any superpower in his own. His suit is the one that gives him the strength to do what he does. And like every other superhero, fictional, non-fictional character, uh, they experience relational opportunities and relational uh, challenges. And uh, Superman was, uh, because of his ego at times, was blinded to understanding the people that were really his friends. He's also struggled with insecurity as a result of the distant uh, father figure that he had, and, and he struggled with that. He was unable to rely and accept the help of others and interacting with others until apparently in Iron Man 2, when he began to realize the need for others uh, in order to fight the threats around, and he opened himself emotionally, I think, to pepper pots or whatever it was, and, uh, and the reality is... Every single one of us, just like Iron Man, fictional or non-fictional characters, we experience relational responsibilities, for example, towards our family members, towards our partners, towards our children, towards our co-workers, towards our neighbors. We have relational responsibilities, every single one of us, because we live in a relational world. It might be the responsibility of caring for somebody. It might be the responsibility of nurturing somebody, the responsibility of directing or the responsibility of challenging, the responsibility of helping somebody move forward in life. We have responsibilities. And many of us endure conflicts in every relational matter. It's not like, will you see conflict relationally in your life? We will have conflicts. It's part and parcel of being human and having real and transparent relationship with other people and group dynamics. And we are so desperate to see 
peace and, and harmony and, and, and matters resolve and things to get back to what they used to be. We always have those hopes and harbor hopes and dreams for our relationships. If we're not married yet, we have uh, you know, hopes for potentially a romantic relationship or, or if we're part of a new uh, uh, work environment and we, and we harbor the need for, 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 for belonging and a sense of uh, acceptance amongst our people. If it's a matter of, of being just uh, hoping that our children will grow up to come back when they don't have to, they come back for dinner when they don't have to, that they would love on us when, when they don't have to. We all have relational responsibilities. We all have relational conflicts and we all have relational hopes and dreams. None is exempted. But what differentiates us is what we do with those experiences and what we do with our relational environment. Some of us, we rely on our capacity. So let's get better at communication skills. Let's get better at interpersonal capacities. Let's get better at persuasion skills. Whatever it might be, we rely on our capacities, and that's commendable. Others of us, we try to manufacture an outcome either through persuasion or manipulation based on positive reinforcement or withdrawal of affection. But we are seeking an outcome and will do whatever it takes to get the outcome accomplished. Others of us, we look at the idea of, per, uh, of interpersonal networks that can assist us in the midst of our challenges or can help us uh, with ideas in the midst of our responsibilities or can just maybe intervene to help us feel better when the conflict and the tension gets too much to us. And maybe, just maybe, some of us, because we're Christians, we pray. We pray when things get out of hand. We pray when things are out of our control. We pray. We potentially pray when things get really hard and when things get out of hand. But what about praying when things are simple? What about praying when things aren't so bad? What about praying for people in our lives when we're taking the kids to school? What about praying for, for, for our friends just before we enter into a, a conversation at, at, a, at a, coffee, uh, a coffee shop? What about in the midst of our work environments that we just shoot a prayer? What about if we learn the habit of praying in the midst of a, a non-formal, non-important communication? What about if we became like the psalmist says, but I am a prayer. Not I pray, but I am a prayer. What would happen if you and I understood the power of prayer? I reckon our prayer for other people will be more consistent and more intense if we answer the nagging question, the one nagging question that you and I have and sometimes subtly suppress and don't answer out loud. What if we answered the question that says, does prayer really impact the people we pray for? Does prayer really impact the people we love? Does prayer really impact relationships that we are in the midst of? And what if, what if, if your intercession proved to be more critical than intervention? 
What if you honestly believe that your intercession for other people, believers, non-believers, strangers, or friends, family, or foes, what if you and I truly believe that our intercession is more critical than our relational intervention? What would you and me do? Well, the scripture is full of people who believe that their intercession makes a difference. And unashamedly, today I want to persuade us as a church family to put the accelerator on in our prayer lives in 2019. And I want to tell you without a shadow of a doubt, I know it's God's calling at least upon me. And you get a chance to hear what God has been saying to me for several weeks. But prayer needs to be front and center if we're going to see something significant relationally in our lives this year. I don't mean just praying. I mean focusing on prayer this year. Look at what happened in the book of Exodus, if you've got your Bible, or in just a few moments, it will come on the screen. And Exodus chapter 17, and this is a a story of the people of Israel, the people of God, who have been just released from Egypt. They experienced the supernatural deliverance of God as they passed through the Red Sea. And there in the wilderness, just before they got, uh, maybe several months, just before they got to Mount Sinai and before they got to the Promised Land, they experienced significant challenges. One was the lack of food, and another was the lack of water, and God supernaturally does something amazing. And they say, wow, God can deal with our physical needs. But then they experience a relational threat, a relational conflict, and here they're going to learn for the first time as free people what prayer can actually do relationally in an environment that is beyond their wildest dreams. So read with me. As we look at Exodus chapter 17, it says this, The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, Choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. The first thing we need to know that as the Israelites were going on their merry way to Canaan, they suddenly were threatened and interrupted by a relational conflict where there's another group of people called the Amalekites coming to attack them. And for your information, the Amalekites were the descendant of Amalek. Amalek was the grandson of Esau. Amalek was the grandson of Esau. And Esau is the brother of Jacob. So in a very roundabout way, Jacob and Esau were fighting again. The brothers and their descendants were at it again. And that relational conflict started way, way, way long ago. In the womb of their mother, where Esau and Jacob were wrestling of who's going to be first. And God spoke into their mother and says, you know, the person that's going to come later, his name is Jacob, the ones that comes later, will be first. 
I have my plan. I have my hopes. It's bigger than, than coincidence. It's bigger than human intervention. I know what I'm doing. And then uh, the mother and Jacob uh, devised a plan to trick Esau into surrendering his, uh, his firstborn right. And eventually, Jacob, uh, through the manipulation of his mother, got the blessing of his father as the firstborn. And when his brother Esau came about to receive the blessing, bang, his father said, didn't you just receive the blessing? I think your brother tricked me and deceived me. And all of a sudden, I have no more blessing to give you. You, you just go on your merry way. And what started with planning and deception came now to haunt their descendants years and years and years later. What if, what if Jacob and his mother interceded instead of intervened in God's plan? Maybe, just maybe, the descendants wouldn't have been hundreds of years later still fighting together. Why would the Amalekites fight their relatives, fight their cousins, fight essentially their brothers? It was an unprovoked attack. The Israelites, when they were coming out of Egypt, they could have gone through the area where the Amalekites were present. They didn't. They passed by them. They weren't planning to fight them one bit. And they were going to uh, Canaan. It has no way near where the, uh, where the Amalekites resided, and they weren't going to fight with them one bit, and they weren't not going to take their land. They were going somewhere else completely. So the Amalekites were unprovoked in their attack on the Israelites. The second thing you need to know, as in Deuteronomy chapter 25 and verses 17 and 18, it says as, uh, as Moses was reliving the incidents of, of Exodus chapter 17, he said, do you remember the Amalekites that came from behind to attack you? You know, uh, in those days, I don't know what's going on today in armies and stuff, but in those days where the Israelites were, were, were going, taking their journey to the promised land, the people who were in the back of the troops were the women, the children, the sick, the disadvantaged, the people who were lagging behind. And who did the Amalekites attack? The weak ones. Because that's the cowardly attack of the enemy. He goes at your area of vulnerability. He goes at your area of weakness. He attacks those who are lagging behind, not those who are steaming up. He does that too. But coward attacks is what's known to be the enemy attacks. And Moses gives us the reason why they did this. He says, because they did not fear God. You can come up with as many explanations as to why the Amalekites would attack the Israelites. You can come with as many explanations as to why the relational conflict is stayed for so many years. But friends, I want to say to you that essentially every relational challenge has a spiritual reality beneath it. And until we understand that there is spiritual realities beneath the, the, observers, the observable messiness of our relationship, we're going to fight people instead of the spirit that is controlling and manipulating the people. Is it any wonder that Paul says we don't fight 
flesh and blood but principalities people underneath who are using others like the enemy was using the Amalekites to destroy to derail and to absolutely take advantage of the Israelites before they experience the inheritance and the blessing that's been offered to them by their heavenly father relational tension often has a spiritual reality so what do we do since it's beyond their abilities to control the relational realms in which we exist, whether it's a relational responsibility, enduring a relational conflict, or harboring a relational hope, there is a spiritual reality. What is our response at God's people? That's exactly what we will learn from the attitude of Moses. Moses said this, Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. And Moses, Aaron, and her, H-U-R, my incredible fun computer, I just could not get that word her because of my accent. I dictate my, my sermons to the computer, and every time I said her, it has H-E-R. It's not her. It wasn't a love match where Moses was going to marry Aaron and her. It was just her brother. He's a man. He's not a her. He's a man. Went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. You probably heard the story before. There they are, the Israelites are confronted with this relational threat. They've never, ever, ever fought a battle. They were slaves in Egypt. And there they have to confront something. And Moses says, you know, in the name of God, I'm telling you, Josh. And this is the first mention of Josh, by the way, in the whole uh, scripture. says, you're going to be an army leader and you're going to go fight the Amalekites. I don't know how, but you're going to do it. And by the way, I'm just going to be on top of the hill. I'm going to look after you because I'm Mr. Courageous. I'm going to do that for you. And Joshua might have thought, what, what are you on about? If you really believe God is asking us to fight this battle and do something about it, why don't you come alongside me? Like pray where you are. Why do you have to go up the hill where you're safe or not, where you can see the threat before your very eyes? But what he needed to know. That prayer as entreating God, with it, which is the posture of the hand lifted up, we read about it even in the book of Numbers that, that Moses says that he would entreat God by lifting up his hands. So lifting up his hands wasn't running away from the battle. It was an essential weapon for the battle. And yes, it wasn't about being passive and saying, I'm just going to pray and God will do the rest. Now Joshua did what God asked him to do. And I, I probably just remind you that God is not asking you to go battle with the people who are troubling you. But God will direct you to do something, whatever that thing is, you're going to have to do it. But you have to understand that is another element of the weaponry of a believer, of a follower of Jesus. And that is to entreat God on behalf of the people. Amen. Intercession doesn't make you a wimp, it makes you a warrior. It's like we think if I don't have anything to do, if I'm stuck, I'm going to pray. 
that's a lousy way of seeing prayer. Prayer doesn't make you a wimp. Prayer makes you a warrior. And often at times, we go through the cycle of planning, acting, and reflecting. It's a brilliant cycle. But what if prayer was front and center? What if we honestly believe that interceding for our relationships with other people, interceding for people who are going through tough times, interceding for people going through battle, interceding for people going through good times, interceding for our children instead of just talking to our children, interceding for our coworker, not just in the instructing our coworkers or helping our co What if intercession made you a warrior? Just this week, one of my best friends and his family came for dinner over our house. And we were reminiscing about the good old days. We, we were together uh, as, as families, grown up as young adults. And, and we, we, we met with Jesus as young people. And, and we spent many, many years, 25 odd years together praying and, 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 and serving God. And, and planted the first church together. And, and he was telling me. Uh, that his mom was, mom is all, he's all, you know, uh, uh, she's old in age now, but she was telling he, her, her grandchildren, my friend's children, about our days and how we used to go to their house and spend the day together and, and we'll go out and come back. But at night, we'll spend the whole night praying. We were just uh, young people. We didn't have much other than, you know, studies, I, I guess, or whatever. And we would pray all night long. And Raph uh, was saying, my friend, who was saying to me uh, that uh, not, not long ago, uh, the pastors in his movement in the area where he serves uh, met with a guy called Yonggi Cho, Dr. Cho. And he is obviously, the, uh, has been the leader of the largest church in the world, 800 something thousand people in Korea. And he was teaching the pastors and the leaders and said, I tell my pastors that, and, and the leaders and the staff in the church that they need to pray eight hours. And he was talking about it. So one of the pastors put his hand up and says, eight hours every how long? And he said, eight hours a day. And he said, and another guy, you know, mentioned, says, what about if they do, they have, you know, big responsibilities and have to do some work? He said, they, they, they allowed to pray four hours a day in busy times. And a guy put his hand up, I kid you not, and he said to Dr. Cho, he said, what about if they can't pray four hours a day? He said, that will be their last paycheck in that show. So we should all be fired, right? But imagine if we talk like that in our Western world. Uh, you know, so what do you do? I pray. Oh, seriously? You do that for a living, man? Like, do you have anything else you do? It's almost like you're a loser if you believe in the power of prayer, then you believe in the power of your own work and performance. And I'm just as guilty. Don't ever think. I'm talking to you in thin air. It hits hard and deep and it hurts more than it hurts you. Just don't think because I'm standing here, I'm like, oh man, this comes easily to me. And God have lumped me on the sideline for several weeks so that this becomes my lifestyle. Not just a message. Moses understood the intercession makes him 
a warrior, nor a loser. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. And as long as his hands lowered the Amalekites, well, you know why? Because God wanted to say that the, 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 the determining factor of winning is not the competency of the fighters, but the consistency of the intercessors. Hear me right. The thing that will determine your victory relationally is not your competency in the fight, but your consistency in intercession. And because that was so big, Moses' hands grew tired. Moses' hands grew tired. Let's get to the next slide. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and her held his hands up, one on one side and one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekites' army with the sword. Isn't it amazing? When the determining factor is prayer, but God gives the credit to Joshua. Because super, super, what's his name? Iron Man, I was going to call him Superman. Iron Man has no power of his own. When you intercede, it's not your power, it's for someone else. You don't get the credit. We don't write about you in the newsletter. Oh, you know, this guy prayed and look what God did. These people's names are never put in a big list and, 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 you know, paraded everywhere. But in the heavenlies, they know who prayed and brought victory and who just took the victory easy. And you and I don't just want it easy. We don't just want to be the people who get gifted at a sympathy victory. We want to be people that pray victory into being for someone else. Moses prayed not because Moses was going to get the applause. Moses interceded because someone else's life was dependent on it. Joshua, the fighters, and the Israelites. Is it any wonder that Moses' hands grew tired, heavy, and weary? You know why? Because prayers that bring victory are not casual prayers. Oh yeah, Lord Jesus, you know, uh, uh, please bless this food and protect our family and look after the world uh, in Jesus' name. That's never going to make you tired. And it will never make you hungry. It's just simply a prayer to tick the box. As if God is like, oh, I wake up to this prayer. Somebody prayed grace before the hour. Oh, praise the Lord. You know. He grew tired. It was serious business, not casual mention. You know what? If only, if only we'll learn from Moses what it's like to wrestle with God in prayer. He has learned from Jacob. 
the father of the Israelites, is that you pray all night long, that you sit at the feet of God and you say, I will not leave you until you bless me. And God bangs, he hammers and hurts and unlocks his socket, his, his hip out of his socket, and he says, but I will not leave you. People that pray like God actually listens. People that pray as if something depended on it. People that prayed out of the passion of their heart for God, not by passing just a normal task of prayer. Christians prayed as if their life depended on it. In Colossians chapter 4 and, and verse 12, Paul speaks of a guy called Epaphras. I hope I can get it out for you. Colossians chapter 4 and, and verse 12. It's just, it's just mesmerizing verse. I don't want to go over it quickly. And it says this. Epaphras, who is one of you, and a servant of Christ Jesus sends greetings. Look at this. He is always wrestling in prayer for you. That you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. He wrestles in prayer. Wrestling is a dangerous metaphor. You don't walk casually into the wrestling ring. Hey, mate, let's see how we're doing today. Eh? It's going for your life. It's saying my life depends on this. There is emotion. There is, there is uh, almost aggression. There's going for your life like your life depended on it. I was telling Susie just, just uh, today that the picture of real anguish, the word wrestle actually means agony. Somebody prays with agony. Somebody's praying out of a sincere, desperate heart. My mom was like that. My mom almost prayed 24-7, honestly. Whatever she is, she prayed, and, and she would sing in a worship song. She didn't know how to sing to save her life, but sorry, man. Uh, but she sings awesome to the Lord. She would never be selected on a, on a worship team. You, you, if you heard her in the car, you'd probably walk out at whatever. You know, she was not a good singer, but she loved on Jesus 24-7. And I remember her room was right next to the bathroom. And in Egypt, in apartments, you only have one bathroom. You can't run to the other one because there's none. And, uh, and she, I would hear her every time crying, not just praying. And I, initially, I thought somebody upset her. But when you're crying all the time... It's a different story, and she wasn't depressed, by the way. I know what you're thinking. She just was passionate about putting others in prayer before her Lord and man. We always say, my dad always says, that there will be no move of God in, in his ministry if it wasn't for mom's prayers. Aaron and her understood the power of interceding that they lifted Aaron's arm. They sat him on a stone and they lifted his arm. And I heard it once said, people around you, they're either around you because they want to take a selfie of the rod, you know, the staff of God, and look, you know, we've got, we've got the staff of God with us. Or they're around you so they can take the rod when you drop it. 
Only few are around you to lift your arm when it really matters. What type of intercessor are you? Are you in it because of what you're going to get out of it and the publicity with the rod of God? Are you in it because you're waiting when you, the guy's going to drop it so you can take it and run with it because it's all about you? Or you are really in it because you care about God's people and you're willing to lift somebody's arm, even if you're not really the intercessor. You're the helper of the intercessor. You're the helper. You're the third row in gaining the, 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 uh, the applause after Joshua and, and Moses, and you come as just the helper. But if it wasn't for you, what would have happened to Moses? What would have happened to the fight? Our oh, friends. What if we prayed like we really meant it? Because that type of prayer changes everything. Look what happens. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it. Let Joshua know that it wasn't because of his competencies that the battle was won. Because I will, and this is the promise, I will completely plot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it, the Lord is my banner. He said, for the hands were lifted up to the throne of the Lord. The Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. And I hope and pray you hear me for just a minute before I finish. This was the greatest declaration of victory. And it was received on the hill of intercession, but it was to live with the people in the valley of battle. It was received from the hand of God, a promise, a declaration of victory, that no matter what happens, no matter that you, what battle you get in, no matter what generation you're in, God promised victory. But this victory, this declaration, this promise can only be received on the hill but it must be embraced in the valley of the battle. What are you holding in the valley of the battle? Have you received because of intercession, a declaration, a promise of victory despite of all odds? He was to write history. And intercession doesn't just make you a warrior, doesn't just make you weary, it makes you a writer. And the pen is in your hand, the scroll is God's scroll, and you can write the future of God's people if only you prayed like it mattered. They didn't just want to put a stone, a, a, memor, a, a memorabilia in the area station, whenever they came back to Rephidim, which is the place of rest, that they would remember the power of intercession. They had to take the, the scroll with them to remind them that Intercession brought a supernatural promise that impacts the rest of their history. Your generations upon generations, your descendants, your children, your grandchildren will never remember what you've accomplished. You don't remember what your grand-grand-grand-grandfather did. But maybe just maybe because of our prayers, their future will be different. Throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, people prayed things happen. God said, if, if my people are called by my name, will humble themselves, will turn from the evil way and pray, seek my face, I will heal the land, I will do something supernatural. 
Is there any wonder when Moses was at Mount Sinai and God wanted to destroy the people because they were worshiping an idol and God said they were stiff-necked people, I'm going to destroy them. He actually says to Moses, get away from me, like allow me the space so that I can destroy them and make you a great nation. It's the greatest promise anyone can receive. And Moses said to God, no way, I'm not going away, I'm going to stand in the way. I'm going to stand between you and this wicked people and I'm going to say, for the sake of your reputation, for the sake of your reputation, don't destroy them. And God, it's written in the, in the scripture that God relented. That means God changed his mind. God wanted to do something, and because someone prayed, God changed his mind. And if you think it was once, you read again about it in the book of Numbers chapter 16. There was a group of people under, uh, under the leadership of a guy called Korah. And they wanted to say to Moses that your leadership is out of God's, uh, God's plan. He said, we are all God's holy people. Who do you think you are? Who do you think Aaron is? We're just as good as you. Why, why are you thinking you're going to lead? So, so Moses went to God and says, what do you want me to do? He said, just separate the rest of the people from them and let me show them what I'm going to do. He told them, you know, take sen- uh, incense and censers and, and try to offer uh, you know, your prayers to God and God allowed the earth to swallow them up alive and go again, block them to the grave. And the people of Israel came the second day to Moses and Aaron and they were nasty and, 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 and uh, murmuring and saying, you killed God's people, 250 plus the, the other leaders. And, and, and Moses said, you know, let's come before the meeting tent and, and let's see what God would do when God's glory fell upon the place and God just was about to destroy him through a plague. And Moses fell on his face and says, please, I know these stiff-necked people. I know they want to destroy your work. I know they want to destroy me. I know they want to destroy Aaron, but please don't destroy them. And he asked Aaron to bring a censer and bring fire, like a coal from the altar, and put incense on top of it. And it was like white smoke that separated the dead from the living. And it was almost like a wall of prayer that raised up to God that brought about the defeat of the plague. God changed his mind. Because of the incense of prayer. What if we believed that our intercession is more critical than our intervention? Relationally, in our families, in our work environments, in our church community, in our neighborhood. Imagine the reason why revival broke in most eras around all Christendom was because people prayed. Even small number of people prayed, but they prayed like their life depended on it. How long are you going to intervene before you intercede? Because if we believe the impact, I want to tell you, you and I will put more in faith time than in face time. We will put more in our faith time. We will go on the floor and we believe on God to do the supernatural in our relationship. We believe on God to change things around, to turn the heart of people, to expose the truth, to manipulate circumstances, to bring His purposes for His people, to bring the goodwill that He has for His people, for God to bring the supernatural results that you can only dream of. Imagine, friends, if we really believe that prayer impacts people. We will intercede more than we would intervene. I remember in 2005, 2005 in in our first church plant, 
we had made together with our mother, a church, the, the mothering church, we made a big decision just before a big launch and, and some of members of our church didn't like that and one of them came to me in the office, I remember, and, and he just poured out his heart but towards the end he became a, a, a little bit more hurtful in his conversation and I understand because it was emotional. But then within a week or so, he took his family and left the church and it was like one of the friends that I counted on and it was one of our core group people. And as we I obviously took it personally, it was my first ministry opportunity and I just felt deflated and blamed myself and felt defeated. And, and I talked about it with Susie and one day we were leaving a church engagement and God gave her the picture of an onion. And God revealed something so profound that we never told the soul since that day. But God almost said to Susie, there is more layers than what he's letting on. And we knew exactly what the embarrassing situation that was going on in that person's life. And I had every evil intention to go and confront him. Just to tell him, mate, we know what's going on. But God said, no. And I felt defeated, but silent. Until several months later, there in the back, him and his family popped up on a, a, a normal Sunday service. And my heart leaped with joy at the power of God. I went and I, I gave him a hug and this guy stayed in the church for many, many years. He was one, I promise you, of the most generous people that we encountered in that church community. He was one of the most supportive person for Susie and my leadership. And he even took away a day off a week from his normal work in order to help in the church. What would happen if I confronted this man? What would happen to our relationship if I tried to, to, to resolve the matter or ruin it even more? What would have happened to his children that grew up in that godly environment? What would have happened to his ministry opportunities that maybe impacted people around us? What would happen if you and I would pray instead of persuade, intercede instead of intervene? Imagine a church like that. You could inter intercede in your own prayer time. You could intercede for one group every day. We just want to build the habit with you by inviting you after the service to sign up for an intercessory team that will work here on Sunday morning. They will come early in the morning. We had this, but vanished for some reason. But we're going to roster some people so they can come and pray in the morning at 9.15. Everybody else is welcome to come and pray, but at least few people that will commit to come every particular Sunday based on the roster. Those same people will pray during our Sunday service. They will be down in the back just observing God's move and, and praying into it. And they will also be available after the service conspicuously on the side to help whoever wants prayer because we want to be a church that prays. Because maybe, just maybe, if we pray, God would heal our land. Let's stand up to sing the last song.